Good to see all of you here today at the Christian Church of Estes Park. I'm Pastor Aaron, and uh, I thank Anna for filling in wonderfully. Uh, Pastor Jesse, he's, uh, uh, he and Angelina are enjoying a much-deserved vacation, a little break, and uh, on his vacation, like so many of us, he gets to preach today, too, so we pray for him. I'm excited about that. He's back in California, but uh, uh, it was awesome. Thank you, Caleb, for covering the welcome as well. It was good to have a great team here. You know, uh, last week we began our study of Habakkuk, and it's a very short study because it's a very short book, but we get into it kind of a chapter a week is what we've been in, and uh, it's a, it's such a timely uh passage of scripture. I, well, I think all of them are, but especially this one as we got into it, uh, how Habakkuk, if you recall, a uh, prophet that was uh, really at the time of, of, uh, of great turmoil. Uh, he, has, he had served at a time when uh, you first had King Josiah, which was a very good king, brought the country back into alignment with God. There was a massive national revival amongst the people as uh, Josiah reigned. And then uh, Josiah died, because that's what people do, and then there was his predecessor, and things kind of went quite the opposite direction. And here you have this prophet, Habakkuk, who is probably kind of like a worship pastor. Uh, he goes to God, and he's praying for revival. He had seen it. He wanted to see his nation restored, and he was praying all the right things, and he was doing all the right stuff, and he goes to God, and this whole pro- prophecy is is just a, a a conversation between uh, a seeker of God and, and the Lord himself. And he asked God these questions. He's like, do you even care? <laughs> like, here I am, I'm praying and all those things. And then once God said, oh, yeah, I do see and I do care and I do have a plan. I'm going to uh, bring, I'm going to discipline my nation by bringing the Babylonians in. And they're pretty vicious and awful. And so they'll be perfect to bring my justice, justice for your people. And then, of course, that wasn't the answer Habakkuk was looking for. So the question is, God, do you even know what you're doing? <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, those are kind of questions that I know a lot of people ask. Uh, we go to God, and, uh, and we have our questions. The world doesn't operate the way that we think it ought to. Sometimes God works in our lives in a way, and we wonder if he cares or if, if, if he's competent. <laughs> really, do you, Are you aware of, of the consequences of your plan? You could really make your name look a lot better we think, to ourselves. And we ask our questions, and really last week kind of left at that cliffhanger that uh, Habakkuk asked these questions of God, but he doesn't leave. You see, if, if you have questions for God, it's great to ask them, but then you also have to have faith enough to listen to him when he replies. And that's something that's really important. We're going to go through that today. Chapter 2 is all about God's reply. To does he know what he's doing, even in the way our world looks crazy? Well, yeah. And, uh, and we recognize that in this passage, it's our, our anchor verse for this particular very short series. It goes to this, Habakkuk 2.4. He says, see, the enemy is puffed up. This is the Lord. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And that really is a key. That's the center of this whole, this whole prophecy, this whole book. Right? That, that the way of the world, the people that are, are astray, that are lost, and even those that set themselves intentionally against God, they have a pride about them. They think they know better than God, even. And because of that, their desires, what they want, really aren't truly good. Although everybody thinks their desires are good, don't we always think that we're in the right? Yeah. 
But in contrast, a righteous person will live by his faith. And this, this is God's message to us. And we'll be getting into that. How does God, what does this look like? And how do we hear from God? So if you have your Bibles, turn them to Habakkuk chapter 2. Right? That's, uh, that's going to be you know, in the, pretty much near the end of the Old Testament, about two-thirds of the way through your Bibles. It's a little tiny prophecy, three chapters long. Uh, but, but as we go there, uh, we just had the prophet. He asked those questions. God, do you care? Do you know what you're doing? And then chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will stand at my watch, and I will station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer am I to give to this complaint? See, he asks these questions, and then the prophet doesn't run. You know, God is big enough for our questions, but we also then have to be faithful enough to hear his answer. And the prophet didn't hide from God. He didn't say, God, I'm mad at you, and then run away. He didn't just tell God and be like, aha, I had the final word, and then end the conversation. And this is really important because so many, that's all they do. They, the world doesn't make sense to them. Their lives don't make sense to them. God doesn't make sense to them. So they bring their complaints to God, and they tell him off, and then they run away. And they're like, la, 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 I don't want to hear what he has to say because I know I'm right. But the righteous person lives by faithfulness. It means even when we don't understand, we're not going to abandon him. It's not a hard concept, really. I mean, think about when people get married. This is kind of what they're vowing to each other, right? That's that whole for better or for worse bit. Like when things are going good, yeah, we're going to be together. But even when you're a stinker, and it's hard, you're going to have my heart. I'm going to be faithful to you. So this is where the prophet was. He was not pleased with God, nor his God's answer, nor God's revealed plan at that point. But he was going to work it out. He was going to stand there and wait for God, for God to speak. At the highest point, he was going to stand out there for the city. He needed to hear what God had to say. I think a lot of us are kind of maybe there. I certainly have been on that rampart many times in my life, especially in the midst of pain or injustice, right? Uh, the, in, the unfairness of life, there are times that we stand and we say, God, where, what are you doing? And then God answers. That's the cool thing about God is that he doesn't abandon. Our God is a relational God, but get this too, he's a great communicator, like oftentimes we wonder, am I going to miss what God has to say? He spoke the world into existence, right? He, he's the best communicator there's ever been. He invented language. In fact, language invented us, right? That God knows how to speak and to get his message across. And so there was faith enough to not just question God, but faith enough to listen. And God spoke to the prophet, verse 2. It says that the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Before he tells the prophet, okay, this is what the bigger plan is. This is why it's good that I'm going to bring the Babylonians in and they're going to take you into captivity, right? Before I'm going to show you why that's a good thing, I want you to write this down. See, God was not doing something he was embarrassed of, right? You don't ask people to write down things that you're, you're kind of shamed of. You don't ask them to put them on something that you can then go broadcast it, right? We don't broadcast our, our silly ideas. That God was saying, this is a good thing, and I want you to write it down. He wasn't 
rocked by Habakkuk's honest complaints. And you need to understand that, right? When we have questions of God, when we have doubts and fears and we ask him, God's not on the throne going, oh no, how am I possibly going to answer this? That person came up with something that I never thought of. He knew, and he had an answer. And he didn't hide it from the prophet nor anybody else. He answered him. And he would answer was going to be something. He's like, you know what? You're not the only one that needs to know this. So we're going to write it down. And God wasn't ashamed by his reply. In fact, uh, he's going to say, you know what? My answer is actually better. My plan is actually better because it's bigger than what you were asking for. Habakkuk was asking for another national revival, just like they saw under Josiah. And guess what? It was amazing. It was awesome, a revival. But revivals are temporary. Revivals take place so that they're there, and a lot of cool things happen, and then they go away. But God was going to do something so much bigger than that, so much more. He says, you've got to write this down. Right? So the three instructions he gives Habakkuk in, in, in this, the first one is, write it down. Right? And not just write it down. Don't just put it on, on papyrus. Right? He says, put it on tablets. Man, write this in stone, which is a little bit more indelible than ink. Right? He says, get this down there. And there's a couple reasons why he needs to write it down. First one, so it'll be clear, right? This is not hearsay. People are not going to need to hear what Habakkuk might have heard from God. They needed to read the word of God. What did God actually say about this? Because God's going to do something amazing. And so often we need to hear directly from God ourselves, don't we? God says, write it down. It needs to be objective. Plus, Habakkuk, you're going to question yourself later on when, when the Babylonians come in and things get hard. You're going to wonder, did I hear him right? Write it down. It needs to be there. That's, it needs to be clear. The second reason he had to write it down is so that it could be broadcast. So a herald may run with it so other people can get this. Right? There's, uh, there's a, 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 a great strength and not being the only one that is heard from God, that we're all on the same page. It reminded the prophet, hey, you're not in this alone. You're not my only person. I have my people. And even though I'm bringing discipline to my people, God was still the God of all of the people. He had a message for them, a very good message of hope, even though it was going to be preceded by something pretty unpleasant. The Babylonians, who were a very painful rod of discipline, See, in the thick of the battle, we need to know the plan, don't we? In the thick of the battles, when we start confusing things, in the thick of the battle, stuff kind of gets crazy, and we start to second guess and wonder and question. You've got to have it written in stone. You've got to have it down there, so that way, when everything is going haywire, you remind yourself, oh yeah, this is part of the plan, but I know where the plan is going. So we'll stick with the plan. So he writes it down. The second thing God tells him to do is to stay faithful to it. Once it's down there, once God has revealed his plan, says, now it's really important that you don't deviate from it. That's why I'm telling you, God's filling him in on something amazing, something fantastic, something also is going to require a lot of bravery, something that's not going to be easy. And so he says, in order to get through this, you have got to stick with the plan, which brings us to the memory verse, the, the anchor verse for this. So he says, write it down so that everyone can see it. And then he says this, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. Right? 
is that, that what I'm going to write down, what, the message I'm going to have for you is going to be so different than what the en- my enemies are going to do, right? God's enemies are in contradiction to what God's going to tell his people to do. Because the way of people is always runs contradictory to the ways of God. Sometimes just one degree off, sometimes a whole 180 degrees off. But we always miss the mark because sin nature, right, where we develop our own standard of right and wrong, our ethical standard, our hearts, our moral compass has gone askew, right? And the enemy thinks that they are in the right. And we see that in our culture today. It is a wrong thing for us to say that we live in an immoral culture. That is not true. We live in a very moral culture. It's just wrongly moral. Right? But if you talk to people who are in opposition to God's ways, they really, honestly, deeply, to the very core of their soul, believe that they're in the moral right. They, they believe that they have the moral high ground. That's why they fight so ferociously for those things. They judge very strictly and without mercy those who stand in opposition to them, don't they? It's not as those who resist God's way think that, oh yes, we're evil, we're with the devil. They believe themselves to have a better ethic than God does. Which is why in our culture, like when I was growing up, to be a Christian, the question that you had to answer to people, is it reasonable? Does God make sense? Is he true? That's why apologetics was so helpful for me. Not the way it is for this youngest generation. In fact, I found that when I was a youth pastor for 10 years. That wasn't the question the kids were asking. I was giving them all the apologetics, and they're like, so what? I don't care if God is real. God is not good. Because his ethics run contradictory to the ethics of the world. The enemy is puffed up. Anyone who thinks that they have the moral authority over God is arrogant. That's just the way it is. And yet, the majority of the world is arrogant. And if we ask ourselves, we are too oftentimes. I'm probably chief among them. There were days I would climb this hill and tell God how I knew better than him at the top of my voice, just in case he couldn't hear. But the reality is is that God always knew better than me. And he humiliated my soul, said, God, this is how I feel, but I know I'm not right. Help me see how I'm not right, because I don't understand it. See, the desires are not upright in this world. It's not that the world, it's like they say, well, we know what's true and good, and we just want to be evil. That's not what was happening in the people of Israel either. That the people that were there, they thought, honestly thought what they wanted was actually better than what God had told them in the covenant. They were going to be enlightened like all of the nations around them and all of their pagan gods and all of the different lifestyles that they were going to live. They, they really thought that that was a better way. And their desire was for something that God said, this is not what I want from you. This is going to destroy you. So when we deal with this world, we recognize that there is a pull between our flesh and our spirit. There's a, there's a pull between the worldliness of, of everything, the culture around us, and the ways of God. And the desires of God's enemies, they're just going to be askew. Isn't it wonderful to know that while we were still his enemies, Christ came for us? That for the arrogant and for the misdirected and the misguided, that God came and he did not abandon And what 
God is revealing to the prophet here is that exact plan. But we have to begin with, he says, listen, you can't follow your heart, prophet. You can't follow your heart on this. The righteous person will live by, guess what, his faithfulness. Not his understanding, not his perfection. His faithfulness to God. You're going to be loyal to me and my plan. That's how you're going to live. The way of life is not going to make sense to you. Because if any one of us thinks that we are righteous, I think the New Testament has a whole lot to say about that. That every one of us has sinned, has gone our own way. We still all have a sin nature that we contend with, don't we? Even the great apostle Paul says, I want to do all the right things, and then I do all the wrong things. What gives? Who can save me from this body of death? And even though we find ourselves maybe misdirected if we follow our heart, which is the worst possible thing we can do, if we want to find the way of life, it sticks with not understanding God. It does not stick with agreeing with God. It sticks with fidelity to God. The righteous person will live by their faithfulness. This is such a key passage in all of Scripture. Do you know that this is actually quoted three times in the New Testament? If three different places actually use this passage as a way of, of discussing God's plan of how we're supposed to live. Romans 1.17 has it in there, and that focuses on the righteous person. How do the righteous, what, what does righteousness live? Where does it come from? Through faithfulness, right? And then we have Galatians 3.11, right, which really talks about how the righteous person lives. What is the lifestyle? How does this affect how we, we go about this, living faithfully? And then in Hebrews 10.38, really talks about faith. What is even faith? And what's the effect of that faith? The focus is on faith. Three passages in the New Testament, core passages, come right back to this. This is such an impo amazing, important foundation for the, for the believer that it's four times in Scripture reminding us that, that even though our hearts will lead us astray, there is a way to life. And the righteous person will live by faithfulness. If you get nothing else from this entire series, get this. God wants your heart. I had a good discussion, uh, and uh, the other day I was, got to have a meeting at the coffee shop, and then I stayed a little bit after because I still had a little bit left in my, in my mug, and it's just rude to throw away good coffee. And so as the person I had met with had to leave, I was still there. And somebody else who had listened found out that I was a pastor asked this wonderful question, and I was so grateful. They said, Pastor, and I don't know if they were Christian, but they said, you know, that our culture, like the Christians today seem very immoral, say, compared to people who lived in like the 1500s, right? Like those, because of the culture around it, you didn't find all of the crazy things that we had. It seemed like culture, because it was a Christian culture, uh, more people, even if they weren't believers, kind of just tended to follow that. So what gives? Is the gospel light going out? Are Christians today, are we going to receive a, a smaller inheritance in the kingdom or, or whatever? Because it wasn't it great that I was in this book? And what a reminder. See, righteousness has a value. Absolutely. But God doesn't save us by our righteousness, does he? Never has. See, God is looking for the faithful. That's why it's so silly for us as generations to judge the next generation and say, well, in our generation, we were more righteous than you. Yeah, but were you more faithful? 
See, in the 1500s, a person could do all the right things but have the whole wrong heart and miss the mark because the righteous person doesn't live by perfection. The righteous person lives by faithfulness. And so we have young people in our generation that have no concept of, of the biblical morality. This, we're a post-Christian culture, but if they can love Jesus, God will help them to come alive. The externals of their life may look less like what we would understand God's ways are, but if their heart is faithful to God, God will make them righteous. The righteous person lives by faithfulness. And so then he goes on, and he says, there are, Israel, even though you're not perfect, this is my people, and I will be faithful to you. Right? And he's going to bring about a faithfulness in Israel because he's going to discipline them. He's going to send them to Babylon, but he's going to bring them back. That God said, there is faithfulness there. My nation will survive. But guess what, he says. But Babylon, the one, the instrument of my, my, my discipline that I'm bringing to you, well, they don't get off the hook because they don't have faith. Even though they're going to they're enact my will by bringing discipline, I'm going to destroy them thoroughly, and they're going to cease to exist. And he gives them five reasons why Babylon, even though they're going to come for a time, they're not going to last. And the five reasons are this. He, he says to them, first, they're selfish. These are selfish people. They, they have this idea that everything is about them. And, and so he starts with that in verses 6 through 8. And then he goes on and he says, and beyond that, they're covetous. Right? They see other people's stuff, and they're never happy with what they have. They're like black holes. They're just going to suck things in but never be filled. And beyond that, then, they're exploiters. They build their kingdom on, on the backs of others. They, they destroy and they take what's not really theirs, and they, they use the weak as pawns, and the, and the strong and the powerful seem to have immunity over anything. Right? They, they don't have to worry about justice. In fact, they pervert justice. That's where they get their power. They exploit. And in their exploitation, he says that it goes on and says, and they're drunkards, right? They just, they overuse the good things of God, the blessings. They abuse them and pervert them until they, they don't make, like they, they dishonor God with their bodies in the world. They misuse everything. And then that leads to the last one is they're idolaters. They worship anything but the one true God. And so they worship false gods. And we recognize that worship is what our lives revolve around, and their lives revolved around them. Now, you'll notice there's a cool little design there in that, that I put those in there. It's because in Hebrew literature, there is this idea of chiasm, which is like, the, like a letter that looks like an X, right? And it's kind of a poetic way of writing something to emphasize stuff. And so what you'd find is the things on the outside, kind of a mirror, and then as they move in, they finally get to the main point in the middle. And so something we find here is that he's saying to them, these people are selfish, and then what is the fulfillment of selfishness? Idolatry. Right? They have the heart of idolatry. They have selfishness. They put themselves at the center, which leads to the, f the fruit of idolatry, which is or the selfishness, which is idolatry. So you plant selfishness, you will always be idolatrous. You can't worship God if you're sitting on his throne. You just can't. And then he goes down to this, that selfishness, idolatry, this covetousness. Covetousness is looking for the pleasures of others. That's the heart, the, the fruition, the fruit of that is drunkenness. When we finally get those things, we misuse them. We dishonor God with the good things he gives us. 
But the heart of all of it, the heart of God's judgment against them, is that they were exploiters. They were, they were immoral. They were brutal and violent. There was a, there was, God is a righteous God, and this was an unrighteous people. And so this is a chiasm, a condemnation, that points the focus right into the heart. And how often it is for us as people, as we are selfish and we put ourselves on the throne, and we're covenants, we want other people's things so we can misuse them for our own selfish gain, that we exploit other people. Don't we do that? And the New Testament says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You want what you can't get, so you fight and quarrel and do all kinds of horrible things to one another. Sometimes scripture is too clear a mirror, isn't it? But it goes on then. It says to them, Woe to him who built a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. That's the heart. That's where we get right into the exploitation. This is why the heart of why God was going to bring judgment on the Babylonians. Builds a city with bloodshed. That God is not okay with the injustice of this world. He's not okay with the strong destroying the weak. Never has been, never will be. He's not okay with people perverting justice to get away with what they want. And for those nations and peoples that just try to manipulate and use and abuse others around them to get what they want, God says, whoa. Which means it's not good. Like God's woes are like really bad. And so the manifestation of, of selfishness is that idolatry and injustice always results in death. Now, like for the Babylonians, quite physically, a lot of death. There was a lot of bloodshed. And they killed a lot of people. But also, we find in the New Testament that the wage of sin is death. So it brings it to our life. When in our own homes, because most of you aren't nations going out to invade others, right? That's not what we're doing most of the time. But we have the nation of the self, don't we? And we go about to impose our will on other people, what we want. Not what God wants, but what we want. And in that, right, we, we, we want them to obey. We want them to do what we want. We, miss, we get drunk with power. And then we abuse our rights. I did this yesterday, and I was very convicted of it. I was driving down to Shields because they had a hat there that I wanted to buy. Because I work out, and then when I work out, my hat gets smelly because it has a sweatband right there, and it stinks. And so they had one there that doesn't do that. So I won't have a stinky head. Right? So that was where I was driving down, something very pure and right. I was going to drive down and get myself a hat. And I was driving down in Loveland, and I was getting over, and they have that road work right there on I-36 thir and I-25. And I knew that I had to get into the right-hand lane because I had to pull into that shield. And I don't like driving in traffic, so I live in Estes. <laughs> so I'm sitting there in the middle lane, and there's another lane as I'm getting up there, and I'm thinking, well, this will get me into where I want to go. So I turn my turn signal on like a good pastor Christian driver. <laughs> and I'm going to move over into that. And then I see the little dots. Da, 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 we're really close together. I mean, this is an exit on the I-25. We're like, no. So I turn my turn signal off and I swoop back into my lane. I was only halfway in. And the guy behind me goes, what? And I got really mad. Because I was on the throne of my heart at that particular moment. I was like, so I was like, What? And so then I drove really slow for about 200 yards, <laughs> drunk with power because I was in front. 
And then the Holy Spirit brought conviction because that was exploitative. That was awful. Of course, I signaled wrong. Everybody makes mistakes. But the heart of God's enemies is puffed up. His desires are not upright. And the righteous person is going to live by faith. But we bring death into our world. That's where it comes from. It's not a surprise that it's there. And we got to deal with that, don't we? And God is not okay. He came to put to death the way of sin and unrighteousness. Aren't you happy that in heaven there's no road rage? Yeah. And then he reminds us again, see, the enemy is puffed up, selfish. I like to look at my enemies and see selfishness in them. I like to look at people who, when they argue with me, and say, oh, look how selfish you are. It's all about you, right? His desires are not right. They're unjust. They're not what God wants. I love to look out at my enemies and condemn them on this. What I hate to do is to have God's word be a mirror for my own soul, and I see it there too. But this, God came to take over my kingdom and bring it in submission to his. But the righteous person will live by faith, friends. There are times we just have to bend a knee to the king of kings. Not what my heart wants to do. My heart wanted to do is I wanted to get out of the car and just pound that guy because he had the audacity to say, whoa, like that was such a bad sin. My heart's going to lead me to death. But Christ always leads me to life. He leads us to forgiveness. He leads us to compassion and to mercy and to grace. He leads us to reconcile with other people. He, he leads us to have tolerance for those who just don't get it yet. He leads us to be willing to put ourselves last and take ourselves off the throne so we can put Christ first and serve others. And so we find in this that, that uh, we have this, this amazing, uh, amazing work there. He says, if you write this down and stay faithful to it, right? And once God tells us to do those two things, he then shares the plan. And his plan is this. This is what he tells the prophet to do as he shares the plan. He says, rest in my sovereignty. That I, God is in control. And he's going to share his sovereign plan. That God is doing something bigger in the life of Habakkuk, in the life of Israel, that, that's much bigger than what Habakkuk had planned, what Habakkuk even had asked for. And guess what? It wasn't going to be Habakkuk's timing. Like The things were going to happen way outside of what Habakkuk was asking. He was asking for an instant revival, but God was doing such, something much bigger, something so much more important. It was going to take time. right? And so things were going to get worse before they got better, and he was warning him of that, but not to panic because God was in control. Verse 20, he says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Just remember that God is still in control even when us people think we are. That wonderful class that Caleb is teaching in Exodus, I think, does a great job with that. And that they have all these Egyptian gods and all of these Pharaoh, and he thinks he's all this power. He's got these armies and these chariots, and he thinks he's in control. <laughs> God laughs. And he laughs at us, too, at times, doesn't he, when we think we can run from God? We're going to thwart God's plan. Oh, yeah. yeah God is so much bigger than a movement. God's so much bigger than a culture. God can, can change the hearts of people. He can bring revival in college campuses. He can do that. He can also change our hearts and lives and our marriages and our families. 
He could change our neighborhood. He could do anything he wants. But I want you to know this. You will never thwart God's plan. You won't do it because he's sovereign. And so sometimes we just have to remind ourselves of this. He's already in control. Let him be in control. And so instead of just restoring one generation's hearts, God was going to do something huge. He was going to bring life to the entire world. Verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful and poetic? That the point of what was happening here, which is, listen Habakkuk, I'm bringing the Babylonians and I'm doing something there. I'm setting something up and it's going to result in this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of my glory. And how full will it be? Well, just like the waters cover the sea. Now let me ask you, what part of the sea do the waters not cover? None. Because if the waters cover it, it's the sea. That's the point. The world will be fully saturated with the knowledge of God's glory. And that's what God is doing. And so Babylon and exile and all this was part of it. God was going to do more than a little time revival that was going to be here and gone. He was going to do something global and eternal. And so it reminds me of actually Romans 8.28. We know that all things, uh, God works for the good of those who love him and been called according to his purpose. That's really what that passage means, not just in the short portions of our timelines of our lives, Yes, God uses all of our suffering, all of our pain, all of our brokenness, all of the things that have happened to us, the injustices, everything. He's going to work them together for the bigger plan. And when we get there, there's a benefit to us. But sometimes we die in this life without receiving the justice that we feel like we deserve. Don't worry, God's on his throne. It will be rewarded. That's why Jesus starts his whole kingdom, like where he begins with the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who who suffer. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or for justice. Because sometimes in this world, you just don't get it. But guess what? You will be filled. You will be comforted. You will be rewarded. God's plans are bigger than our lives. Isn't it grateful that our lives, I'm grateful that my life lasts a lot longer than this body? We have to remember that. So his plans can be bigger than we are. And Habakkuk was reminded, hey, listen, this is going to be bigger than you, but it will be worth it, and you're part of my kingdom. I need you to be a good soldier. I need you to be a good citizen. I need you to do your part. Live by your faithfulness to me, because it's going to get hard. But trust me, it is more than worth it. And he tells to Habakkuk, too, he doesn't lie to him about this. He says it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while. He says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it will linger... Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And that's where we are. Now, did Habakkuk live to the very end? No, he probably was executed when the Babylonians came in. He didn't get to see probably even the restoration of Israel. Just by old age, he would have died probably before then. But because if he was a temple priest, a lot of those guys were killed. So chances were he's not going to get to see this in his earthly body. But he did see it. And we still have his book. And we still remember his name. And God doesn't have to remember him because Habakkuk lives and is highly rewarded. And for us, too, we'd like to put God on our own time frame. God, fix this problem right now for me like it was about me. We have to get off the throne. This is about God and his glory. And guess what? When God is on his throne, his glory, we get to share in the goodness of that. There is great blessing for us. 
sometimes we have to wait for it. It took six more centuries before Jesus came. That's a long time waiting for it. It took over 2,000 years before the gospel would even be preached in all different languages. It's happening now, and it's being written in the final few, in our lifetime. That's a long time to wait for it. Jesus uh, hasn't returned yet. The glory, the knowledge of the glory of God hasn't saturated the earth like the waters cover the sea quite yet, but he's coming back. And he says it's not on delay. God is not slow in this. He has a plan, and he's right on track. We need to make sure we're with him. And so for us, what are our takeaways with this? I think the first thing we got to do is write it down. When God speaks to us, make sure we know what he's saying in an objective way. God doesn't like to work through hearsay. It's one of the reasons why he has the scriptures written. He wrote it down objectively for us to go and to find out. Not what the scriptures say to me. What is God saying in the scriptures? So we don't deviate from his plan. It's good. It takes a while. But it's good. It's kind of like kind of like ribs you ever made barbecued ribs takes a while you ever had ribs somebody tried to cook in the microwave because they got one of those little cookbooks when they were in college not as good the real plan just takes a bit but it's awesome so write it down how do you do that first one we have it written down for us so that's nice we have his word written for us we need to understand it but scripture tells us that we need to write it on the our hearts to chisel it into there because the word of God has got to be with us. The Bible does you no good if you carry it around but you have no idea what it says. You haven't heard from God. So you need to read it. You need to start to understand it. You need to, to memorize it, meditate on it, apply it. Like get the word of God in here because that's the plan and when the world gets rough and life gets crazy, you're going to need to know the plan because then you don't give up and you don't get disheartened and you're not like oh maybe God doesn't know what he's doing maybe he doesn't love me no he loves you very much he sees what's going on and right now he's doing something really redemptive and we can trust him the world can be silent God sits on his throne I can stop trying to judge God he is righteous and he's good I can trust him write it down second you got to do you got to stay faithful because God's plans are not small. They're not for little tiny things. We ask for things that are too small. And it's not as God's upset with us. He didn't ever tell Habakkuk, how dare you ask for revival? That's not what he said. He said, I'm going to give you revival, but something much bigger. We talk to God about our problems, even the little things, and oftentimes he answers the things in our lives. Yes. But he's never going to do that if, at the expense of the bigger picture, the things that he's doing. And so we talk to him. And we stay faithful, even when we don't see him. Even when family and friends and, and culture and society and other things are going to leave us because there will be a consequence to following the Lord. But we trust him. And we trust that the God who is big enough to communicate to us and to save us is big enough to love those who are wandering from him even at this moment. And so we pray for them and we encourage them and we don't give up and we are, we are tenacious and, and, and we just refuse to put in the white towel. We're faithful to God. He's at work. We're going to keep praying. We're going to keep serving. We're going to keep loving. Regardless of what it looks like on the outside, we know the outcome. So we're going to trust until we get there. The righteous will live by their faithfulness. The last thing we're going to do here is we've got to rest in God's sovereignty. This is not about us. You know that God has given our church a really awesome vision, a calling, a mission, right? 
we meet these disciples that build generational transformational disciples. Part of that is saturating this valley with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the waters cover the sea, everybody in Essence Park is going to know who Jesus is, what he's done for them, how they can turn to him, how they can have new life in him, a family, church family, they can grow, and that is going to happen, and it is happening. It's happening slowly, but it's not going to happen under our power. If God doesn't do a work, it ain't going to happen. We just need to make sure we're working with him. So we're going to be faithful. We're going to rest in God's sovereignty. Same thing in our lives. There are things in each one of our lives, sins that that dog you and trouble you, and you don't like them. If you think that you're going to kick those on your own power, good luck. But if you just stay faithful to God, he can can take a stony heart and make it a part of flesh. He can write his law onto your heart. He can change you. He can wash away sin. He can take away guilt and shame. He can bring a revolution in your own soul and your spirit. He can do revival in your home. God can do it. Trust him. The power in him. Just be faithful. Just do what God asks and let God be God. And by the way, that just is a little more relaxing, isn't it? Because we've got a God who is real. He sees. He cares. He's on the throne. He's powerful. So how about us today? How are we going to apply these things? Well, I think we've got to begin with, we have to have faith enough to hear. If you have faith enough to question God, you want to have doubts with God, great, be human. Go talk to him, but then listen to what he has to say, right? You have to write it down, stick with his plan, right? Stay faithful to him, because sometimes God's plans are difficult, but they always lead to something good, right? And just trust in his sovereignty. God is at work. The same God that was at work in the Habakkuk, the same ones that work in, in Asbury College, is the same God that's at work here and now. And so just trust him and follow him. So on your connection card, which I hope that you would all fill out and turn in, right? Let me know these things, the next steps that are on the back there for you as well. Things you can do is memorize Habakkuk 2.4. This is a really key passage. It's one of those fundamental foundational passages of, of all of the text. If you want to write something down, write this onto your heart. <laughs> it will change you. I mean, even when you're driving in traffic down to buy a hat, this passage will help. It's always helpful. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Memorize it. Think about it. Next thing you want to do is uh, read Habakkuk 2. Get through that passage, right? You also might want to stay faithful, right? Whatever God's plan is, say this week, Lord, I'm, I'm going to stay faithful. I'm not going to deviate from that. Last thing you want to do is rest in his sovereignty. Say, you know what? I've had too much on my heart, too many things I've been clinging to. Rest in that. And if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, that's what I'm going to challenge you to do this morning. Why would you leave and continue to walk as an enemy of God when he has invited you to be his child? But he wants to invite you into his bigger plan. That you're not saved by your perfection. You're not saved by your knowledge. You're not saved by your understanding or how good you are. You're saved by God's grace through your faith. You will live by faithfulness. And if you need to make that decision, hang around, stick around here after the message. Um, I'll love to talk with you, help you take those steps of faith to help you start walking in this new life. In a minute, we're going to take our, our tithes and offerings. So as the offering baskets are passed, I invite you to drop your connection cards, your tithes and your offerings in the basket make that expression of your faithfulness to God even this morning. Let's pray for you as you you make those commitments. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, your goodness, your kindness. Thank you that you've loved us more than uh, even we hated you. Lord, uh, even when our hearts had gone astray and we thought we were uh, better than you, Lord, and we were prideful, you didn't didn't abandon us, but you came for us. 
let send Jesus die on the cross for our sins to raise again to give us new life but it's an invitation not to be just your slaves but your children Lord, we want to take that uh, seriously help us to live by faith and for your church here live by faith in this so father this morning the commitments that we make help us to draw closer to you in that it's a it's expression of our loyalty to you it's expression of our trust in you father for those this morning that are really still struggling with doubt father i pray that you meet them and give them faith enough to hear and father if there's anyone here this morning that needs to take that step of, of salvation and to follow you as, as your child that you would help them take that faith to, to not leave this morning before they choose you and begin this new life because you are true and you are good and you are worthy take our tithes and our offerings as well lord build your kingdom uh, not ours for your glory we pray this in the beautiful name of jesus our savior